You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Tim Burrows. Hello, Damien. Brittany Rigby. Hello. Xander Wilson. G'day, g'day. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Zoe will be talking to Leo Burnett, Australia CEO, Melinda Gertz. She's led Leo Burnett nationally since March 2017 and has been in the headlines recently with some significant changes that have been made at the agency, namely the arrival of Emma Montgomery as CEO of the Sydney office. In the conversation, Gertz discusses the importance of leading by example, strategies for bringing women up through the ranks of agencies and strengthening the Sydney office. But before that, the week's topics. Radio ratings return for 2021. Anthony Catalano climbs closer to control of Prime and a tumultuous week in television. The first GFK Metro Radio survey for the year dropped today, and with more new breakfast shows debuting than we've seen for years, there was significant interest in the results. Xander, Brittany, you covered two of the major markets this morning. Let's start in Melbourne. Xander, what were the main talking points? Yeah, well, with Melbourne, they had the the longest lockdown of 2020 and and in the back end of last year, took the longest to start to return to those normal listening habits that that we see and 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 there was still some really strong performances there in the back end of the year from 3AW and ABC and the like. In this morning's ratings, what we saw is something that really multiple radio bosses predicted in interviews to me and to other people last year, which was a shift away from 3AW. Granted, they're still way ahead, um, but there was a shift towards music stations in general. 3AW, as I mentioned, they lost 3.3 points, percentage points. Uh, the ABC dipped by two points, and and then the FM stations were the beneficiaries of that. Fox FM, Gold 104.3, Kiss 101.1, Nova and Smooth all gained share. The funny thing, though, is that several AM radio stations actually performed really well across some other markets, suggesting that listening may not have returned back to normal everywhere. Um, Nova's 5AA had a strong result in Adelaide. The ABC jumped into second place on breakfast in Brisbane, which is something that we haven't seen for quite a while. Um, and, and Sydney saw almost all its main FM stations actually lose share. Um, speaking with Duncan Campbell this morning from ARN, he said he simply couldn't explain what went on in Sydney this book. And and Dave Cameron from SCA thinks he, it's going to be a turbulent rest of the year when it comes when it comes to ratings. And Xander, we've long talked uh, about a slow recovery in Melbourne. Uh, is that still going to be the case? Is that still the feeling in market that it will be a continued slow recovery? Uh, I guess it depends on on who who that's applying to. Um, the recovery for FM stations, getting their ad spend back and that sort of thing seems to be well underway. Um, 3AW and, and other AM stations proved last year that, that you know, the strength of their offering despite changing lineups and, and the addition of Russell Howcroft and that sort of thing hasn't, hasn't um, diminished anything they have on offer. So, um, look, over the next few surveys and, and, and the coming months, the, the, the figures are showing us that, that radio spend is returning to normal and the content bosses seem to agree with that. Britt, you focused your efforts on Sydney. How was the Sydney market going? Yeah, kind of opposite to what Xander observed in Melbourne in terms of the AM market as he touched on. So the ABC was really kind of the big win of Sydney. I mean, Wendy Harmer and Robbie Buck in breakfast were up 2.2 percentage points. They overtook Kyle and Jackie O. 
Then at the other end of the day at drive, Richard Glover had a 5.5 percentage point climb, which is really big. And then overall, ABC was up 3.7 points. So it's interesting. It's it's hard to get, you know, cut through in Sydney when the very obvious stories this morning were, you know, the start of Today FM's new breakfast program with Ed Cavalier, Dave Hughes and Erin Molan, which climbed very slightly, but not too much. And then obviously Ben Fordham was still very dominant. He had his best result ever and was up a percentage point. But really overall, the ABC's performance was really impressive. Interesting with the Today Breakfast actually noting a bit of a climb uh, for a show that we know that they're going to give two years or so, so they say. Uh, that's a decent start at least. But uh, look, this is the first ratings of the year. I, I don't know how much we can really read into this. Tim, what are your thoughts? Well, look, in, in, on um, Today FM, from 4.2 to 4.4 share, I mean, that's within the, you know, the realms of kind of just blips from one survey to another. So, you know, the way of looking at it is they're still basically bottom. You know, there's an awful lot of shows still on top of them. So, um, you know, I think they've got some way to go and it. I must admit, it's not the same as listening to the the show with music, but so far listening to it, I, I it's a bit, and it'd be good to get Xander and um, Brit's views if they've been listening at all, but it feels to me like I can't see the route to a top rating show at the moment, just in, in the kind of sort of content they've got, you know, the, 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 there's nothing that would get people changing dials that i've heard so far but uh yeah i'll be interested to know what you guys think about that yeah so i mean while a a 0.2 percent percentage increase isn't particularly notable i think what is is that um two day fm and triple m sydney were really the only two fm state uh fm stations not to lose share this survey um so that's a bit of a win i was speaking with uh dave cameron earlier he says he thinks that the two day fm breakfast show is the strongest offering they've had in seven years um i definitely agree with some aspects of what tim has said uh in that regard in that you know it's it's not something that is, you know, getting people to switch over straight away. Um, They've mentioned on several occasions they're going to give that show time. They're going to start slow and grow like they do with many stations. Um, And, you know, as Dave said to me as well, the rest of this year it's really, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the radio ratings. We're seeing AM stations fluctuate massively across different markets. Um, We're seeing, you know, FM stations like Kyle and Jackie O lose a significant share in this survey, um, something that we probably wouldn't expect. So, um, you know, it really is just a really exciting year to be covering radio ratings and, and, and be a journalist for Mumbrella. And then, sorry, just one other uh, thing across Sydney and Melbourne that, I'd be interested if you have a point of view on. Um, Nova has done incredibly well in 10 to 17, the demographic, like killing everyone else. Are they that different in programming that, that they're pulling in that audience for a reason? I think an interesting point on that is that uh, Nova's music strategy is – sort of aligned with with most of the other music strategies around Sydney and in those CHR uh, contemporary hit radio stations in that they do um, have a little bit of AC programming. But one thing I did note is that they're quite often the first to jump on really popular uh, breaking new music. Um, although we 
we don't sort of think of them as, I guess, the next step up from Triple J for listeners as we might have thought of them possibly in the 2000s. Um, but I did note that they were one of the first radio stations to add uh, Glass Animals' Hottest 100 winning track uh, heat waves to their playlist. So, you know, they might be tapping into the music that those people are listening to and, and, and who knows, though it is worth noting that Triple J did pick up share across most markets as it does typically uh, in surveys that cover the hottest 100. Coming up next, the cat makes another play for Prime. The fight for Prime Media kicked off again this week as Anthony Catalano, the owner of Australian Community Media, made a purchase of almost 19 million shares at a total cost of $4.245 million. In 2019, Seven CEO James Warburton announced his intention to merge with Prime, but that move was blocked at the time when Catalano upped his stake in the regional media business to 14.6%. The vote eventually saw 53.53% of shareholders say no to the merger, This week's deal sees Catalano acquire shares held by Bruce and Judith Gordon via JP Morgan nominees Australia. What does this mean for Prime Brit in terms of the balance of power? Look, my my take is that short term, I don't know if it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, Catalano has moved from just shy of a 15% share to just shy of a 20% share. So, for instance, for Seven, which is another shareholder, it's sitting just below that 15% mark as well. Catalano already had enough of a stake to block that merger when he last increased his share. So, it doesn't make it any any harder for Seven. It was just, it was already hard. They already knew that they couldn't get it across the line. I think long-term is where that question becomes interesting. Like, what's the play here? I've heard from a few people in market that, you know, perhaps the play is an ACM and prime merger. But again, if you've got seven with a substantial shareholding, how do you get that across the line? Is it teaming up with Bruce Gordon again? Bruce Gordon obviously blocked that seven merger with Catalano. So I think long-term is where is where we'll see what, what Catalano's strategy is. I mean, he's obviously a very sharp, very skilled negotiator and entrepreneur. We've seen, you know, and he said on the record multiple times that, he wants to make a really big regional media powerhouse. And so this has to be part of that that long-term play. Yeah, that's an interesting idea there, a regional media powerhouse, particularly when you then think about the rules and regulations uh, around media. Uh, and one we don't usually talk about, haven't really had the, the need to talk about it for a while, is the, the four or five rule, the four-fifths rule, however you, you want to uh, call it. Uh, Britt, are you able to explain that a, a little bit more uh, to, to the listeners out there who might not really know anything about what this rule is and how it may affect uh, Prime and, and ACM? Sure. So it's a fairly fairly simple one at a, at a top level. It gets complex when you drill down into it. But very simply, there has to be at least four commercial media groups operating in regional Australia. And then the fifth part of that is because there has to be five in capital cities. So it's basically to protect media diversity, which has been very high on the agenda this year. And, you know, the back end of last year with Facebook and Google deals and the media code and and concerns over how that would play out with media diversity. So I think the media diversity concerns are higher than ever. And for ACMA, so the Australian Communications and Media Authority, it has to approve this transaction. It doesn't go through until ACMA says, 
yes, you've met those rules. It's fine in terms of a media diversity sense and, you know, the you can have that many shares essentially. So that's the hurdle that they have to get across and ACMA just has to be confident that that means that there still will be four players in place regionally. Tim, where to from here? What's the next steps in, involved in uh, the, the, I guess, the, the move that Catalano wants to make here? Yeah, to take control, I think the law will have to change. I don't see how it can't, you know, unless they really take a different view to what they usually do. Um, I can't see that, that ACMA will go for it. So I guess there could be some sort of compromise similar to the way that Bruce Gordon used to hold some of his shares where he had an economic interest, but not a voting interest in them. Um, whether 20% in itself counts as a controlling stake, not so sure. You could see more questions if, for instance, um, Anthony Catalano and Alex Wastelist get um, a board seat, which would make a difference. Um, but I also I have a much madder scenario that could unfold over the next year or two that could be really interesting in a couple of parts. So firstly, Brit's completely right. This is about becoming a regional powerhouse. The the you know what nine is in metro. I think Anthony Catalano wants to be in regional Australia. Um, Real View, this um, real estate site that he's connected with, effectively could become the regional alternative to News Corp's REA group or the News Corp aligned REA group and um, the nine aligned domain. Um, so you've got that part of the puzzle. Um, you would have thought that Seven could then be part of that mix, Seven West Media, in that they don't have a real estate play. Only, of course, Seven were pretty furious with Anthony Catalano and Bruce Gordon when they blocked their merger with Prime. So goodness knows what the relationships are there, but it does feel like all's forgiven when it's pragmatic to be so. But the other thing that's kind of, I was just thinking about that's in play at the moment is um, the regional affiliate deals. Now Prime and Seven still have another year to run, if I remember rightly, but um, up for grabs at the moment is uh, Nine's affiliate arrangement with Southern Cross Stereo and TENS affiliate arrangement with uh, WinCorp. Now, the speculation seems to be that Win are actually going to switch back again to nine, which were they were with long-term historically, which which then kind of leaves SCA stuck with 10, which, as we know, doesn't rate so well, so it's probably too hard, um, uh, hard to write revenue. So the question then is, does if that happens – does, and this is where it begins to get a bit convoluted, does SCA, rather than just automatically falling in with, 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 with 10, do they actually try and do a one year deal so they can then negotiate with seven? Um, and then suddenly you think, well, if we're going to have some more media consolidation, then seven West media and Southern Cross Austereo could be a, you know, could be, could be an interesting pairing people haven't talked about very much. Um, so there's, um, you know, there's a lot that could happen. Uh, it, it sort of feels that for the last year we've been on hold while COVID was going on, but now the deals are going to start up again. And it does feel that this week the, the manoeuvring for the, for the stake in prime sort of signaled that that's beginning again. Next up, the Royal Crisis gives 10 a win. 
Australia tuned in to watch Oprah sit down with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry on Monday night, handing Ten a rare weeknight win. Running for two hours, it was the pair's first joint interview since they stepped down as senior royals at the start of last year and grabbed an impressive 1.78 million viewers for Ten. But it wasn't all about the royal family this week, with Seven's ultimate tag debuting to 447,000 Metro viewers and Sam Armitage announcing she'd be leaving Sunrise. She had her last day on the show today. Britt, let's start with Ten and Oprah. How important was Monday night's win and can they really capitalise from that moving forward? Yeah, it was quite nice for me to write about 10 winning the night for a change. They're often behind nine, behind seven, often even behind the ABC. The interview was really big. We knew that it was going to be big, but it was the biggest TV program of 2021 so far. It had more than 1.3 million Metro viewers and then that figure nationally that you quoted, Demo. Obviously, in terms of momentum and what it means for 10 in kind of a more zoomed out way, obviously it's a one-off special. So the momentum has to be limited in that sense. But it's important to note that Viacom CBS, which is obviously 10's parent company, aired the program in the US and kind of controlled how that program was distributed globally. So 10 had to bid to get those local rights, but it does show that by capitalising on that Viacom CBS network, being part of that big global TV company that Viacom CBS is, can pay dividends for 10 here. So I saw that Viacom CBS's share price rose more than 12% in response and hit a record high. So the question globally is whether or not Viacom can really translate it into momentum and then make sure that 10 plays a local role in that. Let's move on from 10 to 7, Ultimate Tag launching to rather low numbers uh, in terms of Metro viewers and it did drop straight after as well. Uh, Britt, how did that go down with the industry and with 7? Look, I think it didn't have much chance really. On It launched on Sunday, it was up against Maths. And then it went against Maths and the Meghan and Harry interview on Monday for its second night. On Tuesday morning when I was reporting on the figures from the night before, I I must have looked through those top 20, you know, Metro shows three or four times trying to find it. And I thought, hang on, has it dropped out of the top 20 on its second night? Is that what's happened? And sure enough, when you then go to a different table that has the the top 100 and kind of focuses on the national figures, there it was nestled in, I think, at about 22nd. So, look, it hasn't rated well. I don't think that I would have expected it to up against those shows. But also it's important to note, I think, that it's come off the back of Holy Moly, a similar sort of show in that it's that, you know, sport, reality, entertainment, you know, that kind of a flavour. Holy Moly started off really strong. That, That first night, I think, impressed everyone. But those figures dropped off quite quickly and continued to decrease over the course of its lifespan. So off the back of that as well, I I just don't think that there was the curiosity to tune into it. People had kind of expended their curiosity with holy moly and hadn't stuck around. So yeah, not surprising, but not not a good result for Seven on this one at all. It's a a new format. They brought it across, I think, in America for the first time last year. So still fairly new globally as well. And um. Yeah, a bit of a shame for Seven on that one. And just a quick final note on Seven, of course, Samantha Armitage leaving Sunrise. 
can we move on the conversation any further about who's going to be replacing her? It seems like Natalie Barr was the the tipsters hot favorite. Any more movement in that regard at the moment? I've got no insight on that one. I think that my guess is as good as anyone else's. I mean, they must have a succession plan in place to to some extent. Obviously, it wasn't a, a shock to seven. It was something that I'm sure the timing has been thought of quite carefully, considering that it is, you know, for family reasons and for her to take a break and she's not rushing straight into something else. So look, it could be it could be Natalie Barr, it could be uh, you know someone else from the Sunrise team, it could be someone else from the Seven Network. Who knows? We could have we could have Sonia Kruger in the hot spot. She does enough for Seven. Maybe that'll be her next uh, her next gig. Next up, Mumbrella's Zoe Wilkinson chats to Leo Bennett's Melinda Gertz. Mumbrella 360 returns face to face this July with three venues, four streams and the most forward thinking leaders in the Australian industry. Whether your brand, agency or media side, this is an event not to be missed. Book your early bird tickets now and save $300 via mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360. Joining me now on the Mumbrella cast is CEO of Leo Burnett Australia, Melinda Gertz. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Happy International Women's Week. Can I say that? Week. Yeah, I, th- I think women deserve a week I, instead of just a day. I agree. I think we deserve more than a week, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Every day is International Women's Day. Got it, lady. And in light of that, I wanted to kick off our chat with asking you, Who are some of the women that have inspired you throughout the course of your career? Yeah, it's like, wow, where do you begin, right? Zoe, there are, I mean, you know, I have to start with my mother, don't I? And my five sisters, I grew up in a, on a farm with five sisters. So we were a little bit known in town because we were sort of, we were feminists. My dad always says, I was a feminist, you know, without even knowing it because we were the kids, we were the kids running the farm. And um, we were getting suntans while we were at it because that was the era when suntans were good. So it's hilarious. But I think so my mom, my sisters are just hugely influential in my life. And, and my dad in the sense that he never said, oh, you can't drive a tractor at 11 just because you're a girl. There was never any of that culturally in my life. So I think that you have to start there. Um, <clears throat> when I think professionally, there's a person that stands out to me in my very early years, because I think most of us, it is those very early years that somebody just makes a big difference. They say something to you, they show you the way, they do something that makes you think, wow, that's that makes me think I can, or it makes me want it, or something. And um, for me, a person that stands out was a woman named Mary Bishop. And this was in Chicago. This is at Leo Burnett in my early years. And Mary was, I mean, she was nothing but just hugely intelligent, first of all. But her intelligence was IQ, EQ, blend. She was working in a male, in a man's world. And the clients that she had were, you know, men all the way <laughs> through and through. Um and operated, you know, in kind of that old-fashioned corporate way that just felt, now that I look back and I reflect on it, it really just was not, you know, sort of collaborative and open and authentic. It was really hierarchical. It was status-oriented. It was who's got the loudest voice? Um, how do you shake up a room, you know, in a big room? 
But Mary just was a brilliant navigator of that. And she did it with class, integrity, and being herself, being her own person of just great intellect and ability. And I think I didn't even understand all this back then. I didn't know what authenticity was. I didn't know, I didn't even know what job I was in, but I saw her be courageous. I saw her basically shut down a room full of white men because of her extreme intelligence and her ability to just nail thinking and ideas and articulate them in a compelling way. So I think I just got so inspired by what she did and what I saw. But again, I didn't even know enough to process that fully. So I was young. I was, I, you know, I was just absorbing and trying to figure out what it was to even be in a, you know, in, in the beginning stages of a career. So, but, you know, the other thing that I think she taught me was how important creativity is. And, you know, she believed in ideas. She believed in having brave, creative ambitions. And I, again, I just think that I'm blessed because those things were imprints early on. So she's a person that looms large and I haven't spoken to her probably in 30 years, but I, you know, I owe her a tremendous debt. In my mid-career, someone I would signal who was equally influential, but at a different point for me was Richard Pinder, um, who at the time was our president of the Asia Pacific region. And he was constantly tapping me and saying, I want you to lead. And I had my third baby. And I was like, I'm really happy being the two I see. You know, and this is a kind of classic woman stuff, right? It's like, no, I'm really happy being the second person in charge. Anyway, Richard, in his very compelling way, um, said to me, you know, Melinda, I get it. You've got three little kids. You are, you know, happiness to you is a very balanced life. And as I say, an integrated life. And he said, but I want you however I can have you. So let's just make that work. And I tell this story, and there's a longer story to it, to women, because of course, meeting him, I was 20 minutes late because I was breastfeeding my baby, Sophie, at the time. And I was like, man. And I said, this is, the, this is my life, buddy. And, you know, and, and his words were so profound because instead of saying, yeah, it ain't going to work, honey. Um, because I need somebody who wants to work 18 hours a day and this is all you care about. I said, no, I got to be happy and my happiness will make me, make me love my work and charge harder. And when he said, I'll take you any way I can get you, it was like, bingo, we're on. And it is in my head probably every day because I think we beat ourselves up as women saying, I, I'm not conforming. I'm not doing that enough. I should be. And I re and he reminds me how to tap into who you are as a person and your authenticity, and it's okay. Who you are is 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 good enough, and lean into that. Quit comparing. Quit worrying about the other stuff, and and just do it. And so, you guys, it was pretty profound for me because first of all, I said yes. Then I will lead, and and secondly, again, it's framed the way I think about my role. Period. And I know that cultivating female talent is a huge passion of yours. And in your 18 years as CEO at Leo Burnett, first at Melbourne and now of Australia, you've made strides to increase the ratio of women in leadership positions at the agency. 
How have you taken that off? What are some of the strategies you put in place at the agency to bring women up through the ranks? First of all, I think for me, again, let's go back to the beginning, five sisters, a very female environment. I saw nothing strange about just naturally having women around me and working for me, working with me. It it wasn't like, well, I've got to go find women. To me, that was just, that's the talent base. You know, that's 50% of the talent base. So I never felt that I was writing conscious strategies about attracting and, and retaining women. It was just naturally, I love women. I love working with them. I don't, I, I just don't see this thing that I've got to overcome. But I am very, very aware because of my own experience in leadership and my my journey through leadership that I had, you know, in, in my experience here, I had really no female role models here. And I felt like I was a pioneer always. I was always like jumping off a cliff. I was always like, well, I'm going to work four days a week and be an MD and that's that. And there was no reference point for that. And people said, I don't know how you can think you can do that. And I I think I I had to be brave without, again, even realizing it. And I was doing that without anyone saying, this is how I've done it. I just kind of was winging it and crossing my fingers and saying, this is what makes me work better as a human being. So I have to do this to be effective in my life, period. So in a way, I think just leading by example is probably the answer to that question. It's like, it's unconscious in a way, you know, the first part of it, I love women and women are half the talent force. So why wouldn't we want half of our talent base, at least to be women? And secondly, I think just naturally I was role modeling without really being aware of that. And, you know, when I was raising my children and they are now young adults, um, but when they were little and I was working four days a week, that was before we'd had COVID and that was before publicists introduced Liberté, which is awesome, by the way. But I was really just trying and trying to make it all work and saying to women, yes, we can and yes, we will. And support me. I support you. I just, I just had wonderful people around me. I think that's a big part of it. I think also... Again, consciously, unconsciously, you're building culture and you're building a culture that is probably, again, did I know it or not? Was I doing that deliberately or not? But you're building a culture of inclusive cl- inclusiveness. You're building a culture that really rewards team, that really rewards openness, transparency. Um, and, you know, I always talk about helping people succeed versus encouraging people to fail. <laughs> you know, these seem like really basic things, but I think they often are missing in cultures and certainly in what we think was really a um, male-dominated culture, I think, of the past, um, which was about me and it was about heroics and it was probably about, you know, there was a little bit of agendas and and unconscious and conscious bias, I think. I want people like me which meant guys. So I think all of those things you're shaping sometimes without even knowing because you just want to do what makes sense for you as a leader and as a business. And that's what's good for people is good for business. That's what Leo Burnett always said. And I completely subscribe to that. But do you feel as though some of that responsibility does fall 
on female leaders' shoulders too often? Yeah, and and maybe it's because I have both attracted and um, retained some pretty awesome men as well, who I think are enlightened and who don't, you know, say things to me like, oh, you're getting all politically correct on me, Melinda. You know, we talk about, no, that's just correct. And and respect is what we're talking about. I think because I'm surrounded by a lot of great men too, it just, it doesn't feel a burden. I get agitated a lot, Zoe, because I see things externally and occasionally you see things internally that just aren't right. And, you know, I'm noisy about that, both internally and externally. But I think that in our business, in our agency, I would say that men are on my side. And I don't mean men are deferring to me. I think men are genuinely feeling this is a good environment. This feels right. And gender is not really the conversation. It's really around respect. And with that comes inclusivity. And with that comes just a more positive enabling culture. And looking at the uh, Australian market in particular, I think in comparison to strategy and management roles, there seems to be a lack of women in ECD and chief creative officer roles. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, this is just, this is a real gnarly one and so disappointing and discouraging, frankly, that it's 2021 and we're having this conversation. I mean, really? But, you know, I think this is actually a result of an industry that has had conscious and unconscious bias and that has had a culture that was not inclusive and that thought that was okay. And again, because it wasn't even conscious, it wasn't talked about, it just was. And what happens is if you're not bringing women in in their early part of their career and holding them and retaining them as they go on to have new chapters in their lives, like children, for instance, for many women, if you can't figure that out, you just lose them. And so that slippage of women out of our business, I think, in those, particularly in those childbearing and raising years, was has just been terrible in the creative ranks, I think. And I just feel like it's the last years, probably also since Me Too. I think Me Too has really helped enormously because it's pushed organizations that didn't want to know about it to actually have to have those conversations and have to deal with it. And I'm just excited. It's so, I mean, I'm not excited about the fact that it is a problem still. I'm so, I think, ashamed that our industry sits in that space because we're creative industry, for God's sakes. You know, we should be the ones leading the way on that. But having said that, I am excited to see pretty much every business now and every agency really leaning into this. And if you talk to executive recruiters around the world now, they're I think it's hilarious because their number one and two um, talent challenges and what they're looking for are women and people of color. And, you know, again, is this a little bit sad that we have to spell that out as that's they've got to find those people disproportionately, but it's great that that's happening so I am sad and really happy and encouraged about that. And 
um, you know, I still have every now and then you still hear the commentary that says, well, you know, that disadvantages us white guys. And you know what? Yeah, maybe, maybe, but let's make room. Let's finally make room for the full spectrum of talent. And, and I'm, I'm truly excited about what that will mean for creativity and what that means for just the future of our industry. A few years ago, you launched the Viva Women Initiative for the Publicist Group. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think, um, Zoe, I'm so proud of that and proud of the wonderful women that you know, all aligned and we're excited to do that. And, you know, I think when you, when you choose to do something like Viva Women, what I didn't want it to be was cocktail hour, you know, where we say every now and then we'll have an inspirational speaker come in and make us all go rah, rah, yay, we're women. We've got a lot of that going on and that's great. And we need to do that. But I wanted us to probably be more tangible and purposeful about achievements and really focused on some outcomes. So, we had four things on our agenda and we went to all the women in publicist group and obviously Mike and Henri and Polly, you know, who are leading the publicist group were so supportive of this. But I think our number one task was let's have the most amazing and equal and positive parental leave policy that we can because a huge barrier for women is that. And I know when I went through you guys, it was it was kind of hell. I don't have a fond memory of my time away. It just makes me so sad to think about it sometimes because there was no support mechanism in place for me. Not financial, not, you know, cultural. It was just like, oh, darn, Melinda, you're going and that's going to be pretty messy. And it doesn't mean people didn't care. It's just, we just didn't have the structural support for me. So my own personal experience made me very motivated for us to be best, best, best. So as a result of that, we have up to 18 weeks paid leave. We have, you can choose to do that half pay for 32 weeks or full pay. We have primary or second care support. We have a return to work. There's, we know that's a huge challenge for women coming back. So we put in place, I think it's like 10 days that we have extra for leave so that they can choose to take those days when they have a sick baby, when they just can't do it. And of course, COVID changed everything because, you know, women, we, we've all realized we can be at home all the time if we want. But I think the point of that was we really broke through and changed the way we see how impact how much impact parental leave has on women's ability to be you know returning to work great talent the other thing we looked at is pay equity we just wanted to make sure that we're not talking about it but that we're actually doing the analytics around it to make sure that we don't have this gender disparity and i think that the initial outcome of that was that we're in a pretty good place and there's pockets where we needed to do some work um, but in a, in a really good place. And I, and my point of view is that's just ongoing. That's not a one moment. We have a look and we see how we fare. We've just got to be vigilant about that all the time. So we have much clearer benchmarking now. And honestly, I credit everyone in the publicist group, all the leadership for really leaning in on that. The other thing we put on the agenda was unconscious bias, mandatory training. Everyone has to have the training around that and sexual harassment. And I went to all those initial training sessions that we had. And even for me, it was shocking. And even for me, I was like, whoa, I didn't even think like, I didn't, haven't thought like that. 
I didn't realize that. And so I consider myself, you know, leading in this area. And yet I learned so much by just going through training. And then the last thing is mentoring and networking and really giving people access, giving women in our group access to different mentors outside of their, you know, normal agency brand. And, you know, there's something like, is it like 900 women in our group or something incredible? And the community is awesome. And I think Viva Women has really given us all a common agenda that's the right agenda for women in our group. So I'm really proud of it. And you've just hired Emma Montgomery, a familiar face to Leo Burnett here and overseas as CEO in Sydney, meaning that there's now two female CEOs of an agency, which is not something you see very often in Australia. How did that conversation start? What made her the right person for the job? Oh my gosh. Well, I probably can't reveal everything, Zoe, right? But listen, I hold Emma in such high regard. And always have. Emma is part of, well, the publicist group for many, many years because she had a huge career before Leo Burnett with Starcom. And, you know, she is a formidable intellect. She is a person whose beliefs, ambitions, and values are completely aligned with mine. She's a driver of change. She's, she's a, I call a combo platter of all these different areas of expertise and skills. So her diversity of capability is just enormous. And so, you know, what's not to love here, regardless of what gender she is, but she is somebody that, you know, we have always been in touch and we've always talked about, you know, the prospect of working together in a leadership sense. And I think timing is part of that always, Zoe, you know, it's just, everybody's got timing moments in their lives as businesses and, and, and people. And the timing was kind of awesome right now, you know, her desire to return to Australia. Um, Hey, let's, go. So it's, it couldn't be better. Had this happened a year ago, we would have said, let's go too. But it's, it's, it's now, and we're just so delighted. I can't wait. And she's in quarantine now. She's, she's arrived. She's on the ground. She's in quarantine. And so we're just, we're doing this. <laughs> a lot of Zoom calls. I mean, that was going to be my next question because it's the first time there'll be a CEO in Sydney for a number of years. What made you decide it was the right time to do it? Was it the fact that with COVID lockdowns, you weren't able to get up to Sydney very often last year. Was something else at play? You know, it's such a combination, but honestly, it's that right person. And again, Emma is someone, you know, I'm, I'm speaking very openly here that, that she and I have always wanted something like this to happen. I think she's just a, a wonderful future leader for our company. So again, had this happened a year ago, great. We would have been doing it then. Zoe, I think it's just that the timing was right for her. The timing is always right for us in a way, but it's a wonderful time for her to come. I think we had you know, some really tough stuff in a COVID year, both as an industry and as an agency. Honestly, toughest year of my life in every respect. And, you know, it doesn't mean there aren't amazing things that are happening in that, but it was hard. It was hard. It was hard on all of us. And I think it's just a great time for her to come in because I wouldn't say the world is in recovery. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, right? We've got a long way to go. But we are all feeling more buoyant. We are all feeling more optimistic for sure. Um, I mean, many of my family members have the vaccine, which just gives me so much joy. And 
I think the other thing is we've just started to see about five months ago, we started to see so much opportunity come back. So we have literally in the last four months put on six new clients and, um, you know, a couple you don't know about Zoe because we haven't made those public, but the, it's just so wonderful to feel like the opportunities are coming and they're there and we're, we're converting those. We're building growth after the COVID year. I just, I couldn't be more thrilled about that. And so Emma walks into a business that I think isn't heading into COVID, but we're coming out. And, you know, the optimism around that I think is, is brilliant for her. Well, I look forward to hearing what's to come. Melinda, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Zoe. It's a pleasure. And that's it for this week. But before we go with the Mumbrella ComsCon Awards first entry deadline just around the corner, you still have enough time to take a look at the 25 categories up for grabs. Identify which ones apply to you and get cracking with those entry submissions. All entries submitted by next Friday, March 19, will save $100 per entry. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash comscon for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Damo. Thank you.